So that's it, the last solar eclipse to be seen on this continent in this century. And as I said, not until August 21st, 2017, will another eclipse be visible from North America. That's 38 years from now. May the shadow of the moon fall in a world at peace. As I'm being followed by a moon shadow, moon shadow, moon shadow. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM, Palinville, New York's 102.9 WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR in the nation's capital of Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. Yes, that is our official theme song. It's our official theme song just about every 99 years, whenever there's a total eclipse of the sun that runs across the entire nation. We're also heard coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow in a uh, in a swell place today uh, from bradblog.com because Desi Doyen, I really enjoyed that solar eclipse. That's all I'm. <laughs> that's all I can say about it. I know it was pretty fascinating, pretty interesting, pretty wild. We had glasses. We actually shared them with people that were able to we have a chance to look. We actually had a hard. We had to virtually find these things on the black market. <laughs> it wasn't really, but we we got them from a friend at like midnight the night before as she was. Li- well, I can say it's a. A, a connection with uh, JPL, sort of, the uh, uh, our old uh, super duper associate producer Margot uh, Piaz helped yes. us uh, get some sunglasses so that we could actually look at that thing, and it was totally cool. Yes, it was very very awesome and just a neat way to start the day. The first eclipse of the sun across the entire continental U.S. in 99 years. The last one was June 8, 1918. The last full total eclipse to cross uh, the United States. To cross States. The, all the way across the continental U- United States. Yes, I remember it well. Uh, <laughs> but the next one will will be April 8, 2024. So mark your calendar as we will be uh, right near the end of Donald Trump's second spectacular term and uh, at that point and uh, and the uh, greatness by then will even be greater than today and you'll have plenty of time to get your solar eclipse viewing glasses if you haven't gotten exactly them already. <laughs> or hang on to the ones you got this time uh hearing that frank reynolds at the opening there uh from abc news uh back in uh when was that that was in that was 1979 79 talking about uh the next one being Today, he got it right, August 21, 2017, and may the shadow of the moon fall in a world of peace. Oh, well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so oh. at least the scientists got the calculations <laughs> right. The date right. was right, exactly. <laughs> and the scientists who, you know, we're always here from Republicans. The scientists, they can't even tell us if it's going to rain next week. Why should they? Why should we listen to them when it comes to climate change and global warming? Well, 
The scientists are pretty good. They had this one right, what, uh, 30-something years ago? Whenever that something, was? Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. So, yeah, they're good. Uh, of course, uh, and it was it was one of the things that was nice about it was that it was a, a non-political matter for at least a few minutes in this country that everyone in this country at the same time could seem to enjoy. Yes, so, for a few minutes. For a few blessed minutes. And then, of course, we have to come in, screw it up, start talking about climate change and science. (laughs) And in fact, uh, the Daily News, New York Daily News uh, on their cover has Trump looking up and squinting because he looked up despite all of the warnings. Don't look at this uh, eclipse without these uh, special sunglasses. He did it anyway. So uh, front page of uh, Tuesday's New York Daily News. Donald Trump squinting at the eclipse with the uh, all caps headline. Not too bright. (laughs) ignores shouted warnings and looks straight at the sun anyway (laughs) well in case you are just joining us here on this planet uh here's what you may have missed if you hadn't heard over just the past four weeks of our story so far this comes courtesy uh get, get a nice cool lemonade sit back this is just the past four weeks on Planet Trump, courtesy of Brooke Baldwin over at CNN. So in no particular order, President Trump in the last four weeks has uh, fires his chief strategist, fires his chief of staff, hires a new one, hires a new communications director, fires him, hires a new one, his fourth in seven months, publicly shames his attorney general multiple times, loses a health care bill, publicly shames the three Republicans who voted against it multiple times, bans transgender individuals from the military without telling the military, ticks off the Boy Scouts, makes up a phone call with said Scouts, makes up another phone call with the president of Mexico, thanks Vladimir Putin for expelling Americans, hundreds of them, takes days to sign a bipartisan sanctions bill and then blasts Congress for making him sign it, condemns leaks, but then says he likes the leaks because it shows people love him, encourages police officers to be rough with suspects during arrests, publicly shames the Republican leader he needs to get anything done uh, multiple times, embraces an unpassable immigration plan that sparks a debate about the Statue of Liberty and the definition of cosmopolitan. He threatens North Korea with nuclear war, tells Guam it'll help tourism. Then his own chief strategist calls his bluff and says, nah, there's no military option in North Korea, threatens Venezuela with a military option. After a Nazi rally in which someone was murdered, the president blames both sides. After the backlash, cleans it up, denounces those white supremacists, but then hours later erases all of it and makes everything worse by again blaming both sides, saying there were fine people there. No, they weren't. They were Nazis. Uh, Suggests there's no difference between George Washington and Robert E. Lee publicly shames CEOs who abandon him, then loses two of his entire jobs councils after execs jump ship, considers a pardon for, of all people, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, all the while he's facing these accusations of racism. Uh, By the way, plugs his winery in Virginia when asked if he will, as president, visit Charlottesville, Uh, tells the world to study a lie during a terror attack, and gets condemnations from Democrats, Republicans, former presidents, world leaders, allies, his own staff, and the Pope. And still, still has no regrets. (laughs) Jesus. 
Well, there you go. Uh, I guess uh, no wonder uh, the week is just beginning and I'm already exhausted <laughs> from the past four weeks. Yeah, that that's... is our story so far over just the past four weeks. If we did that for every single month since Trump was inaugurated in January, yeah. it would take up several shows, I think. she's That's a very limited version of what's happened just over the last four weeks, but a, a pretty good one. <laughs> Yeah, and the six uh, months prior to that, you could do one for each of those uh, months, and it would sound a hell of a lot like that. So that is our story so far. Thanks for catching us up, Brooke Baldwin of CNN. Um, And so no wonder what we are seeing now is uh, people, at least on the Republican side, at least beginning to start to say they have had it. They have had enough. Late last week in The New York Times, Julius Krein uh, who was a huge supporter of uh, of Donald Trump's, wrote an op-ed with the headline, I voted for Trump and I sorely regret it. He writes, I supported Donald Trump in dozens of articles, radio and TV appearances, even as conservative friends and colleagues said I had to be kidding. As early as September 2015, I wrote that Mr. Trump was the most serious candidate in the race. Critics of the pro-Trump blog and then the nonprofit journal that I founded accused us of attempting to understand Trump better than he understands himself. I hoped that was the case. I saw the decline in this country, its weak economy and frayed social fabric. And I thought Mr. Trump's willingness to move past partisan stalemates could begin a process of of renewal. It is now clear, he writes, that my optimism was unfounded. I can't stand by this disgraceful administration any longer, and I would urge anyone who once supported him as I did to stop defending the 45th president. Far from making America great again, Mr. Trump has betrayed the foundations of our common citizenship and his actions are jeopardizing any prospect of enacting an agenda that might restore the promise of American life. And that is from a supporter of Donald Trump, a huge supporter, Julian Krein, who goes Julius Krein, who goes on to say, uh, after more than 200 days in office, Trump's behavior grows only more reprehensible. Meanwhile, his administration has no significant legislative accomplishments and no apparent plan to deliver any. Nothing disastrous has occurred on the foreign policy front yet, but... The never-ending chaos within the administration hardly inspires confidence. Many senior-level appointees are still not in place, including the assistant secretaries of state, for example. And too many of those who are in office appear to be petty, clueless, and rather repulsive ideologues like Steve Bannon. This was published the day before Steve Pan- uh, Bannon was, uh, was banished on, uh, on Friday of last week. Um, they seem to be a repulsive ideologues like Bannon, who seem to spend most of their time accusing one another of being swamp creatures. It's pathetic. No wonder an increasing number of officials are simply ignoring the president. An alarming but understandable development. Effectively, a third party president without a party. Mr. Trump has faced extraordinary resistance from the media, the bureaucracy and even within the Republican Party. But the administration has committed too many unforced errors and deserves most of the blame for its failures. Far from making the transformative deals he promised voters, his only talent appears to be creating grotesque media frenzies, just as all his critics said. 
Well, gosh, I wonder if that means that Julius Krein will now start listening to those people who were right all along nah. about Trump, nah. about the Republican Party's agenda, about income inequality, about all those things that that have helped to increase to, to to raise Trump up into this this populist figure when he's really nothing of the oh, kind. Oh, and I think he's in favor still of all of those populist policies, just not of Donald Trump, because now it's too embarrassing to be associated with Donald Trump, at least for some voters, for the most part at least among the Republican side, seem to be okay with it. That is uh, his support in his base is uh, is eroding there as well in a way that would be alarming to most presidents. This president, uh, unclear if he is actually, uh, well, unclear if he actually even believes that those uh, tr- those uh, those polls are real at all. He may have convinced themselves that the polls are fake. Uh, but it's not just uh, that one guy uh, who's able to who was willing to come out in the New York Times. The AP reports over the weekend that Trump's racially fraught comments about a deadly neo-Nazi rally have thrust into the open some Republicans deeply held doubts about his competency and temperament in an extraordinary public airing of worries and grievances about a sitting president by his own party. And by his own party just seven months into his first term in office. AP writes, behind the high-profile denunciations voiced over the past week by GOP senators, once considered Trump allies, scores of others, influential Republicans, began to express grave concerns about the state of the Trump presidency. In interviews with Associated Press, reporters uh, across nine states talked to 25 Republican politicians, party officials, advisors, and donors who expressed worries about whether Trump has the self-discipline and capability to govern successfully. One of them was Eric Cantor, the former House Majority Leader from Virginia. He said Republicans signaled this week that Trump's handling of the Charlottesville protests was, quote, beyond just the distraction. It was a turning point in terms of Republicans being able to say, We're not even going to get close to that, said Cantor. Chip Lake, a uh, a Georgia-based GOP operative, raised the prospect of the president leaving office before his term is up. Wow. It's impossible to see a scenario under which this is sustainable under a four-year period, Lake said. Again, a GOP-based operative in Georgia. On the record, saying that with his name attached to it, that is definitely a new development because, you know, we've seen some reports here and there, oh, Republicans are expressing private concerns that they're worried about the president's ability to handle the stress of the job, etc., his competence, his emotional stability, but now... Now they're coming out on the record. That is definitely a little. That's uh, they're a coming bit. out yeah. a little bit. A little. Uh, Julie Pace and Bill Barrow at AP note that uh, the Republicans interview did not line up behind some course of action or an organized break with the president. Some expressed hope that the recent shakeup of White House advisors might help Trump get back in control of his message and of the GOP agenda. But still, they write, the blistering and blunt statements from some Republicans have marked a new phase. Up until now, the party has largely kept its most troubling doubts about Trump to whispered private conversations. And uh, they go on to quote a few more. Here's uh, another one. Clarence Mingo, a Republican state treasurer uh, candidate in Ohio. He said, I was never... I was uh, never one that was convinced that the president had the character to lead this nation, but I was certainly willing to stand by the president on critical issues once he was elected. Now, 
Even where good conservative policies are concerned, that progress is all negated because of his inability to say and do the right things on fundamental issues. In Kentucky, Republican State Senator Whitney Westerfield called Trump's comments about the Charlottesville protest more than a gaffe. I'm concerned he seems to firmly believe in what he is saying about it. They go on and on here. Mike Murphy, um, a veteran Republican strategist who most recently had uh, worked for Jeb Bush uh, during the 2016 uh, GOP uh, presidential primary, said most party regulars have gone from an initial feeling of guarded optimism that Trump would be able to stumble along while Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan do the big lifting and pass our Republican agenda to a current feeling of deep frustration and despair. Well, terribly sorry to hear about that, but perhaps that's why uh, Donald Trump is hoping to change the subject. Let's talk about Afghanistan. Now, what he's going to do there is not yet clear, but he has announced that on Monday night he's going to be making a, a primetime speech about it, about his new strategy. I suspect he's going to be adding a few thousand uh, troops, but we'll see. Uh, just as uh, Barack Obama did, actually, Barack Obama added uh, tens of thousands of troops, but what was uh, Bush's war became Obama's war. Uh, may now become Trump's war. We'll see. We will. Uh, well, we'll talk about that on uh, on tomorrow's program. In the meantime, on the other side of the aisle, NBC News notes that uh, if Democrats are planning to ride an anti-Trump wave to take over the House in 2018, they can't just rely on seats where voters resisted Donald Trump in 2016. They also face a major task of winning back those rural and blue-collar whites who defected to the president. That path, NBC News's uh, Benji Sarlin and Alex Seitz-Wald said, runs through places like Dubuque County, Iowa. For decades, they know Dubuque was a Democratic stronghold. President Barack Obama won the the county by double-digit margins in both of his elections and easily carried the state. But there were cracks along the way. They write, in 2010, a Republican won a county supervisor position for the first time in more than five decades in Dubuque County, Iowa. In 2014, a businessman captured an open seat in Congress in another upset while aligning himself with the Tea Party. The losses at the time unnerved Democrats, but some comforted themselves by blaming flawed individual campaigns. It wasn't, it's not Democrats. It's not uh, any problem with Democrats overall. It was just that particular, that particular Democrat who was running. After all, they said uh, Democrats still outnumbered Republicans in the area. But on November 8, 2016, the shift became impossible to ignore. For the first time since President Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Republican presidential ticket had come out on top in the county as part of a statewide 16-point swing, reportedly anyway, from 2012 to 2016. There was no escaping it anymore. Dubuque had become Trump country. So uh, they go on to write a detailed article about how the Democrats uh, could could be looking at a at a wave election next year, a 50 seat pickup, potentially 50 seats. Really? They say as Democrats look to the horizon in 2018, they they think they see a distant tsunami forming in their favor. Trump has dreadful approval ratings. Democrats are winning in generic ballot contests. 
asking uh, you know folks who they'd prefer to uh, run Congress, Republicans or Democrats, without using any actual names. And things tend to change when when people use actual names for these candidates. They say the Senate may be out of reach for Democrats, but they can almost feel the House Speaker's gavel in their hands. Uh oh. But they'll be uh, still unlikely able to flip the 24 seats. They would need to flip 24 seats to regain the House unless they can take back places like Dubuque and the surrounding district. It's going to be seats like Iowa's first district that are very important to winning a House majority, said the managing editor for the politics forecaster Crystal Ball. Democrats have a national structural disadvantage driven by a combination of gerrymandering and the clustering of their voters in cities. So that means they'll have to compete on even tougher terrain than they did ahead of their 2006 wave, which netted 30 seats in the House and a new majority. But since then, yes, all of these districts have been gerrymandered within an inch of their lives. And so some real questions about whether Democrats are going to be able to put together these pieces in order to translate the way uh, people, voters, Republican officials feel about Donald Trump into an electoral victory. But they have a plan, at least something they call a uh, a better deal. We will talk about that better deal. And if it is better and if it has any chance of changing the Democrats fortunes with uh, David Dayan, our good friend, will be joining us after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Back to life, back to reality. Back to life, back to reality. Back to Do we have to? We have to go back? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Hey, Democrats, remember them? Yeah, me neither. Uh, but there is at least one other party in this country that are not Donald Trump's Republicans. Now, a few weeks ago, when the Democratic Party began to unroll what they describe as a better plan, a push to begin a focus on economic issues in advance of the 2018 campaign cycle, many derided the name of that plan and its branding. A better deal, better jobs, better wages, better future, they said. Didn't pack match. Didn't uh, pack much of a punch, and it seemed to remind uh, many less of FDR's New Deal than it did of Papa John's pizza slogan: "Better ingredients, better pizza." 
But in truth, there is some substance amidst the Democrats' scheme, if media and voters are able to see any of it, according to financial journalist David Dayan, who argued the case over at The Nation earlier this month. Want to lower the cost of prescription drugs, Dayan writes? Dems have got a price-gouging enforcer, the director of a new agency dedicated to investigating drug manufacturers that jack up the cost on their products. How about breaking concentrated corporate power across all fields? They've got a consumer competition advocate who would recommend investigation of monopolistic industries to the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission. How about trade, a policy that was ripped away from liberals by Donald Trump? Democrats got you covered there, too, says Dan, with a new American Jobs Security Council as part of this plan that would be able to veto foreign purchases of stateside companies on economic grounds and an independent trade prosecutor that would challenge unfair trade practices outside of the World Trade Organization framework. As Trump is busy getting rid of federal oversight and regulations and even scrapping outside advisory boards from economic business councils to arts advisory boards to a team of national climate science assessment advisors, the Democratic Party's so-called better deal proposal rolled out last month details a number of new regulatory agencies and positions that they promise to establish if voters will put them back into power. Of course, they are running for Congress at the moment for next year's midterms, so even if they regain the majority in one or both houses, they would still have to get the approval of a president who is more interested in tearing down federal bureaucracy, the deconstruction of the administrative state, as Trump's now former chief strategist Steve Bannon described it, than in building up new organizations that might really be able to help drain the swamp of corrupted regulatory and federal oversight agencies. So Dayan argues with Democrats unlikely to be able to implement these proposals in reality, at least until after recapturing the White House in 2020, if that happens. The plan, he says, may be a bit of a dodge. Still, he argues, it's also as quietly radical as anything we've seen recently from a major political party. Radical? Really? Democrats? Really? Maybe. Here to explain what could be quietly radical about the Democrats' better deal and other related topics is David Dayan. He's a financial journalist, contributing columnist at The Nation and The Intercept, and a weekly columnist for The New Republic and The Fiscal Times. He's also author of the critically acclaimed Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. He's a winner of the Studs and Ida Turkel Prize as well, and perhaps the most prolific journalist that I am dizzy trying to keep up with. David Tayen, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Hi, how you doing, Brad? Oh, hanging in there. Uh, would rather be watching the eclipse, but you know, uh, life goes on. Uh, David, uh, when I invited you to join us, uh, actually to talk about your piece on the quiet audacity of the Democrats' better deal, Steve Bannon had not yet been fired, uh, and his he hadn't given his rather amazing interview to Robert Kuttner at the American Prospect, where you are also a contributor. Uh, there were some points in that conversation with Bannon and, and some other related news that I want to get into before we get to the Democrats. Um, 
Specifically, uh, well, let's start here. Politico's Nancy Scola reported late Friday that more business executives are departing en masse from Trump administration advisory positions. She cites uh, about half of this uh, advisory board with the Commerce Department have now uh, fled over the past week, this uh, digital economy board, I think. Also, billionaire investor Carl Icahn, who Trump spent months bragging about on the campaign trail, uh, that, you know, that he would be part of his team. He also announced his resignation over the weekend, I think, for different reasons. So what are we to make of all of these business leaders disassociating themselves from this White House? Is it merely symbolic? Is it political? Or are there actual functional parts of some of these boards that will now be missing from the federal government? I can't believe that people are being duped by this obvious PR strategy to to have these CEOs distance themselves from an unpopular president with unpopular ideas. Uh, All you have to do is look beyond these advisory boards, mm-hmm. which are really nothing more than, than direct lobbying efforts, to know that, that the lobbying has just gone underground. Mm. <laughs> there's, there's, they, these are not you know, the moral conscience of a nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, CEOs continue to support the Trump agenda of deregulation and massive tax cuts. The Business Roundtable still has a multi-million dollar ad campaign supporting tax cuts, which is the top priority of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. The CEO or the chairman of the Business Roundtable is Jamie Dimon, who uh, was one of these CEOs who resigned in a huff uh, from the, one of these advisory panels, uh, claiming that uh, you know such hatred and bigotry has no place in America. But apparently, as long as the tax cuts keep rolling in, uh, they'll bankroll uh, the advertising for the Trump agenda. So it is so dishonest to see these CEOs uh, lifted up as some, some sort of beacon of light mm. in, in the darkness of Trump, when behind the scenes they continue to make contacts, uh, shape the, the regulatory agenda, shape the legislative agenda, and it, it, this is really not about, about CEOs finding their voice. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're finding a way to control government while hiding the marionette strength. That's <laughs> all this is. It is there, so, yeah, it's, I mean, it seems pretty obvious, and you're right, and not a lot of people are focusing on this, but it seems pretty obvious this is about protecting themselves politically, protecting their companies politically. Protecting their brand, exactly. Yeah, is there any... If if not functionally for the uh, for the U.S. government, is there any political price to be paid here, or the business uh, men uh, business folks do well by this, and uh, I mean, Trump just goes on as is? I mean, I certainly hope that the groups who were lobbying uh, businesses to disassociate from Trump mm-hmm. aren't duped by merely these CEOs dropping off a council and continuing to support the same agenda. Mm. You know, there were groups like Color of Change and other groups out there, Sleeping Giant, who, who really pushed for this, who, mm-hmm. who wanted these councils shut down. And now they are shut down. And, and I feel like the only thing that's happened is that the lobbying has gone underground. And, of course, because the Trump administration has removed the public release of White House visitor logs, 
We won't even know mm. if CEOs manage to show up in the White House to talk to the president, to talk to the staff. Uh, the, the, these organizations, progressive organizations, that have been pressuring corporations need to go much further than just asking for you know, a few PR words and, and dropping off a, a symbolic council. They need to really look at who is supporting an agenda that they feel will harm their communities and who is not, and, and make the basis on that, not on participation in, in some PR photo op. Uh, let me uh, move on here, speaking of dupes, uh, to uh, Steve Bannon, uh, who had uh, reached out to your editor at the Progressive uh, yeah. the American Prospect, I should say, the progressive American Prospect, Robert Kuttner, uh, for that now infamous interview last week. Uh, he had uh, written that he, or he had told Kuttner that he had contacted him because Kuttner had written about trade with China and that yeah. uh, Bannon might be uh, able to find common ground, he thought, between the right and the progressives in this area. Uh, he, wrote, he, he said the economic war with China is everything. This is what he told Kuttner, and we have to be maniacally focused on that. If we continue to lose it, we're five years away, I think, ten years at the most, of hitting an inflection point from which we will never be able to recover. So what the hell is Steve Bannon talking about there, and is there any common ground in actuality uh, between the way uh, economists on the right and among the progressive left view trade with China? Well, uh, I think what... uh Bannon's theory is is that uh, China has uh, engaged in a mercantilist policy. They've, they've very aggressively tried to take market share from uh, trade mm-hmm. and, and, and manufacturing and have been very successful uh, over the last couple decades in moving a lot of factory work over mm-hmm. to China. And Bannon clearly sees this as a problem, and many on the progressive left also this as a major problem, whether it's because uh, the Chinese are, are you know, not paying their people nearly to the degree that the U.S. does, whether it's a case of currency manipulation where China artificially lowers the value of its currency to make its exports look more attractive. Um, all of these aspects are things that that organizations like the Economic Policy Institute and the Center for Economic and Policy Research have been talking about for a long, long time. And so it's not crazy to think that there might be some points of, of congruence there mm-hmm. between uh, what Bannon was talking about and, um, and you know, someone like Robert Kuttner. Uh, Kuttner uh, admirably says that, that there are no real alliances to be made here as long as uh, the, the, the Bannon uh, side of things leads with uh, discriminatory rhetoric, uh, uh, you know, crack, xenophobia, mm-hmm. crackdowns on immigration. There's, there's really no common cause to be made as long as uh, that, those wedge issues are placed kind of in the forefront. Um, it's also interesting that, uh, you know, the main thing that Bannon was talking about to Kuttner in that interview was a, a, uh, an investigation of China that he wanted to have done for the theft of intellectual property. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, at the end of last week, uh, the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer did go ahead 
with initiating that investigation. Now, uh, think that... about intellectual property theft, and this is something that the Chinese have been accused of for mm-hmm. some time. Who would benefit uh, from a, a crackdown on intellectual property theft? It wouldn't be, you know, really manufacturing jobs. It wouldn't really be uh, blue-collar workers. It would be the pharmaceutical industry. It would be the movie industry, and it would be the high-tech industry, uh, pirating software, pirating songs, pirating movies, pirating prescription drugs. And this doesn't flow down to manufacturers. This flows down to the corporate treasuries of these very large and powerful industries. And so I'm not sure why you know, uh, a, a worker in Michigan should be particularly concerned that Chinese firms are, are uh, pirating content <laughs> from tech companies. Right. I don't know how that's going to affect their lives in any real way. It's a special pleading, really, upon, uh, on behalf of these domestic industries that are, are pretty well off. And the, and the losses that they claim because of this IP theft are really outrageously inflated. Uh, uh, so it, it's interesting that even though we're supposed to perceive Bannon as some sort of economic nationalist, mm-hmm. uh, the, the main thrust of the policy that he's putting forward would really uh, be a benefit to corporate America here in the United States. So when they talk about a populist trade war with China, well, they say, Bannon said in the interview, we are in an economic war with China. He said right. they are crushing us. Is any of that true? Well, uh, I, I mean, I think from the Chinese perspective, they feel like they're in an economic war in some ways. Uh, there, there's some truth to the fact that they have aggressively put together a policy to, to you know, gather as much uh, manufacturing jobs as, as possible. And, you know, you can look at the statistics since China's entry into the World Trade Organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been millions of jobs lost from the United States that have gone overseas, uh, particularly to China, uh, because of their trade policy. And yet so, the... I mean, none of that is untrue. Right. It's just weird that uh, the, the first policy that Bannon comes up with is a direct funnel back into like the treasuries of Merck and Microsoft and Warner Brothers, yeah. rather than you know, a help for the factory worker in Youngstown, Ohio. Yeah, uh, not weird, perhaps predictable, I guess, uh, if you pay attention. Uh, also in that prospect interview, Bannon uh, said about the Democrats, uh, quote, the longer they talk about identity politics, I got them. I want them to talk about racism every day. If the left is focused on race and identity and we go with economic nationalism, we can crush the Democrats. Now, never mind if they really are going for economic nationalism, as you described, David Day, and uh, right. they seem to be acting, saying one thing and doing another. But um, is that uh, point uh, generally true as you see it? Uh, this will help us move towards the conversation about the Democrats here. Yeah. Or is this a, a bit of a brer rabbit, you know, please don't throw me in that briar patch sort of thing? Right. Uh, I mean, I'm curious yeah. as what you think about that. Uh, I... I both sides of that. I mean, uh, it, I, I do think there is some truth to the fact that, uh, you know, a, a consistent focus on, on race and identity sometimes, you know, conjures up the so-called silent majority and, mm-hmm. and creates a, a, a backlash. But that in no way is a reason 
not to put the, the, the clear fact of structural racism at the center of a progressive uh, uh, response mm-hmm. to what is happening in America. I, 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 I feel like the way to combat it is, A, first of all, to point out abhorrent views when they are abhorrent. I don't think Donald Trump has done himself any favors in the last week by uh, an insistent focus on race and identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and number two, to show the, 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 the real bankruptcy of this so-called economic nationalism, mm-hmm. which really is being done uh, for the benefit of corporate interests, going back just to the beginning of our discussion, uh, you know, nobody has benefited more from the, the last seven months of Donald Trump than uh, corporate CEOs. They, they, you know, mm-hmm. uh, practically all that's gotten done is this extreme deregulation uh, on, on practically every facet of industry. So I think the way to puncture that really is to go after that directly and to put forward, uh, you know, a different agenda that actually attacks corporate power rather than makes, you know, uh, uh, relationships and partnerships with it. Well, since you uh, since you asked, I'll just uh, yeah. give you my thought here. I I don't think I I think the uh, Brer Rabbit part of it is uh, making it an either or, making it a choice between these That's two. True. Uh, and 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 it seems to be working because you see you hear a lot, a lot among uh, Democrats, among progressives. No, we can't talk about identity politics. We have to talk about, you know, economic populism. Uh, others saying no, we have to continue uh, talking about these uh, uh, racial issues and so forth. I, I think we have to do all. I mean, right is right, wrong is wrong, and you know these things are still right whether they're uh, you know no matter what your political opponents think about it. So and, I think we can talk about all right. of it. Yeah. The the uh, extreme inequality and wage stagnation that we've seen over the last 40 years has a disproportionate effect on people of color. The uh, ravages of mm-hmm. the financial crisis, the people who were most powerfully affected by that were people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, you cannot disassociate uh, race with economic issues. They are all part of the same set of challenges in our country. And, uh, you know, you hear the phrase intersectionality or, or you know, this idea that, that these issues have connections and they affect one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's all true. Yeah. And, and so uh, I always steer back to that, that if, you're, if you really want to lift up uh, the, the, the voices and the, the talents of people uh, of color in this country, you have to uh, attack these structures of power economically as well. I want to ask you about those structures of economic power and uh, and what the Democrats are going to do about it in 2018, specifically their better deal plan. But I also need to take a quick break first. So let's sit tight. David Dayen, uh, financial journalist uh, with The Nation and The Intercept. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back and I will ask him about these specific plans the Democrats are rolling out, and uh, if it's going to do the trick at this point. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't go away.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Your head explodes with I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. That's where we are today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com on the dark side of the moon, at least for a few blessed minutes uh, today. Speaking with David Dayan, financial journalist and contributing columnist at The Nation and The Intercept. About the uh, the Democrats' better deal plan that they introduced just a few short weeks ago in advance of the 2018 election season that, yes, is about to get ramped up in full. Uh, David, you detail in your uh, in your piece on the Democrats' better deal plan a number of federal agencies that the Democrats are proposing for oversight. Uh, and, and yet a number of the things that they are talking about uh, such as uh, someone to oversee price gouging by pharmaceutical companies, a consumer competition advocate, a, an anti-monopoly czar, I guess, if you will. These are things over which existing federal agencies are already supposed to be uh, overseeing all this. So give us an idea what the Democrats are proposing here and how and if they are any different from existing agencies that are already doing the same thing in well, many that's cases. that's so interesting about it, and that's why I just... Uh, decided to focus on it because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can see this in a couple different ways. The first way you can see it is it's just sort of a massive cop-out. We already have these agencies uh, who, you know, in, in terms of drug prices, would be the Federal Trade Commission and to some extent the Food and Drug Administration. In terms of monopolies, it would be the Justice Department's Antitrust Division and also the Federal Trade Commission. We have all kinds of, uh, on trade, uh, uh, U.S. Trade Representative's Office and other, other organizations, the Commerce Department, mm -hmm. uh, all of which should be doing these jobs already. Uh, so you could see this as sort of a cop-out in that uh, we're going to call for a new agency every time there's a problem, and uh, obviously, unless we have the White House, these agencies are, you know, kind of immaterial. It's not like... Uh, putting a new mm -hmm. agency to t attack drug prices under Trump would, would really have much of an effect. So you can see it that way. The other way you can see it is sort of a signaling that the current agencies that are set up are unequipped to do this job, whether they've been captured by corporate interests or they've just been built up over the years to such a degree that they are unable to fulfill their mission. And I really think the model here is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, prior to that agency, which was a brainstorm from Elizabeth Warren before she was a senator, she said, we need one agency for consumer protection uh, in financial contracts. Mm -hmm. And there were already agencies who had that responsibility, most notably the Federal Reserve. Uh, that was their job. And, and what we saw in the financial crisis is they didn't do it mm. because they were more concerned with the safety and soundness of the banking industry than they were of homeowners or uh, people who you know, entered into financial transactions. 
so it's this reordering of government created an agency with the sole mission mm. of protecting the consumer. And it really overhauled this uh, set of consumer protection laws that were set up all across the federal government. And it put them in, the, in, in, in an exclusive uh, agency that really only had that issue at heart. And I think that uh, sort of, you know, the, the Democrats are trying to recapture that magic in some way, that, that this ended up being a, a positive step. Uh, the consumer financial dollars have been pushed back to consumers from the CFPB. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to want to do this again and again and again. And really, that's really about reorganizing and reordering government mm-hmm. uh, to the degree that we haven't seen really since the New Deal, since all the alphabet agencies of the New Deal that really changed the way government responds to citizens. So and that's why I say it's quietly radical. You can see it as sort of a way to push off these questions uh, for another couple of years, or you can see it as a way to really reorder government and to admit that uh, government has, has failed at, at this level, even under Democrats, uh, to, to be responsive to the public. Essentially, what you seem to be arguing is that the existing uh, agencies that would be overseeing these things have now become so corrupted yeah. uh, by the, uh, the the lobbyists and the and the companies who own them that we just need to create new agencies to do yeah. these things. And I feel like that's the, not what I'm saying, but that's what the Democrats what they're proposing. are saying implicitly through their proposal. And, and, and what pre- what prevents those agencies from becoming equally uh, well, as corrupted down the really, road? But uh, I think the experience of the CFPB has been pretty instructive. It was a new agency that came in mm-hmm. with new powers and, and sort of a new attitude uh, toward, uh, you know, who they're going to place first. And so far it's been pretty successful. Even under Trump in the first uh, eight months or so, uh, they've been able to carry out their mission. Now, obviously, when Trump gets to name a director next year, uh, things are likely to change, but and you can't really do anything about that other than uh, you know make sure that the person you put in charge of government doesn't hate it so much that he's going to undermine everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I think that uh, what other option do we have, right? I mean, the, you know, if you're going to uh, say put us in charge and we'll do this. Uh, you can go about it one or two of two ways. You can say you're going to hire people at these existing agencies that are that are you know we're going to follow the mission and mm-hmm. fulfill it of these uh, these various responsibilities, or you can say that structure doesn't work anymore, and we're going to overhaul that structure and put in something that is targeted and specific, and uh, that will make it easier for the regulators to identify. Uh, the problem areas, and then go after them. And, and I think the latter is what Democrats are, are, are saying. Here. David, I've got just a, another minute or so here, but I always thought that the, um, that the brilliant simplicity, if you will, of Newt Gingrich's contract uh, for America, remember that back in the sure. 90s, was that it listed, I think it was like 10 items, 10 things that they promised to do if you put us in power, if you put the Republicans in power. They were terrible things, in truth, and Republicans 
it didn't really have the power to do many of them uh, with a Democrat in the White House at the time. But it gave voters something to vote for, which I think is important. Right. It, 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 do, do you see this plan of the Democrats uh, in some way uh, similarly uh, to that? Uh, or is it, you know, I mean, we're talking about you know regulatory agencies. Right, it it right, seems right, kind right. of in the weeds well, here. Will this motivate people level. to turn let me, out? Let yeah. me say this. Yeah. I don't have high expectations for, for Democratic uh, campaign plans, I guess, at some level. Right. But what I will say is that all of these things they've put out thus far really boil down to uh, one simple phrase, and that's fighting corporate power. Whether you're talking about high drug prices, whether you're talking about trade deals that rip off American workers, whether you're talking about the concentration of economic power across all sectors of the economy that has uh, exacerbated inequality, wage stagnation, uh, uh, the ability to innovate, the ability for workers in large stretches of the country to get ahead, uh, all of those things boil down to fighting corporate power, and that's really what this better deal document is saying at a certain level. Uh, it, it may sound wonky in places, uh, talking about consumer competition czars and this and that, but uh, really what they're saying is here are two sides of what is happening in our economy, in our country, and we're going to stand with the people rather than these powerful actors. Now, Democrats have used that people versus the powerful kind of dynamic uh, over the years many times, uh, for, uh, going back to Al Gore in 2000, mm -hmm. going back even before that. Bill Clinton was talked about that in, in some ways. Uh, credibility is the issue for Democrats, whether they're going to follow through mm -hmm. on this people versus the powerful rhetoric that they sometimes bring up to try to win elections. And, uh, you know, to the extent that there's a real specific policy plan here that, that you can get behind and say, yes, this would make a difference, I think that's positive. But, you know, the goal for activists and, and, and people who want to see the country improve is to hold Democrats to this core message of fighting corporate power and make sure that they live up to this rhetoric that, is, that they're putting on the line here. Fighting corporate power. That uh, rings a bell. I feel like somebody was talking about that last year exactly. uh, on the Democratic side, at least. Uh, and, yeah, I guess I guess that's still where they are if the Democrats can actually make a, a legitimate case for it, that they actually believe it this time around. Right. And uh, that's all, the yeah. whole issue yeah. right there is, is whether they're going to live up to a standard that they're now setting for themselves within this document. I think it's generally a good thing, uh, and it gives people, whether you supported Bernie Sanders or whoever, uh, a target. You can say, you know, this is what you called for. Yep. We didn't come up with this stuff. You called right. for this fight, and you're going to have to follow through on it. Hold them to it. Uh, I'll point folks to your uh, piece at The Nation on the quiet audacity of the Democratic Better Deal. David Day and financial journalist, contributing columnist at The Nation and The Intercept uh, and everywhere else, as well as author of the, of the book, Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. David, always great talking to you, my friend. I suspect and hope we'll be doing it again soon. All right, Brad. Thank you. Thank you. 
Yeah, you know, I'm. I, I've heard this argument, Des. Uh, you know, between uh, Democrats and progressives. Oh, we have to focus on economic issues. We can't, uh, you know, focus on racial identity politics and that sort of stuff. I think that's nonsense. I think you focus on all of the above. Period. And if there are people within your uh, base of voters who can't stand the idea that you are standing up for what is right when it comes to uh, when it comes to race, when it comes to uh, sexual orientation, uh, you know, standing up against guys like Donald Trump banning transgender people in the military. Well, the hell with those people, the hell with those voters. Yeah, I don't think that there are that many Americans who would really, truly, honestly object to the idea that all Americans actually are created equal. And perhaps we should articulate a positive agenda to ensuring that. And if there are those people, well, then the hell with them. Run, th- run them out of uh, Let them the vote party. for Republicans. Let them vote for Republicans. They got their own party. Exactly. I think it's a kind of a fake issue that's being put up by uh, actually I've seen it from uh, folks on the right and left that that argument that you have to choose one or another. It is an attempt to increase the divide among the left because, hey, divide and conquer as a strategy works. Apparently it does. Uh, It has worked for Republicans. um, And if Democrats uh, go down that same road, well, I think they'd be making a huge mistake. Uh, Just fight for what's right, but give voters something to vote for. It's not just enough to say the other guy stinks, the other party sucks, Donald Trump is the worst. Tell us what you will do if you are given the reins of power. I suspect I'm going to say that a hundred times or more between now and my God, uh, next November of 2018. All right, my thanks to our producer today, Desi Doyen. Of course, to my guest, David Dayan. You can find uh, all of his uh, work at daviddayan.tumblr.com because he writes all over the place. And to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. We do appreciate those of you who have become active supporters of the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to put your money where your ears are. It is greatly appreciated. You can also find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. You can drop me email as well. If you have any thoughts on this discussion, I am bradcast at bradblog.com. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.